Welcome to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. You can also check us out online at realchurchcoweta.com or jump on Facebook at Real Church Coweta. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. I am super excited to, uh, that I had the privilege to preach this morning. I don't, I don't get asked often anymore to, to, to preach in front of a lot of people, but this past couple of weeks have been pretty good. I've gotten to, I got to preach at our old church twice. Um, just the other day, I got to officiate my brother's wedding. Uh, that was the first wedding I've ever done. And then I get to preach this morning. But the one common thing I keep hearing from every single person that asks me to speak or preach is keep it short. Uh, so, and Aaron reminded me two times this morning already to keep it short. Um, but this is, this is a tough subject to keep short because, honestly, this, this could be a series in itself, a six-week series. And um, I've been working and going over it over and over again on what, what exactly can I pull out of it. Because this won't be an exhaustive list but it's, it's the, the three or four main things I could think of. And uh, I get nervous about preaching. I get nervous about handling God's word because the Bible tells us that if you do, the preachers are going to be held double accountable for everything that we say. So I can't imagine how much more accountable I'm going to be held for preaching about the word itself. So it's terrifying to me. And last night, me and Noah were doing our night-night prayers, that we call them, and uh, I got up and was leaving, and he says, wait, Dad, and he comes over and he gives me this little blue car, and he says, look, this is for good luck tomorrow so that you can do. He's only six, so he doesn't understand providence yet, so I let him go with luck, and he tells me, hey, good, this is for good luck, and it's always brought me luck. I said, awesome, so I felt really good about it, and this morning in church, I was talking to Zane, and I was like, yeah, Noah gave me this car last night, and here comes Cassie, like, she has a tendency to rain on my parades, and she comes over, and she's like, wow, um, actually, Noah gave me that same car a while back and called it his apology car. So, if the sermon's good, then it was for luck. If not, then Noah's sorry, right? This would be his, <laughs> his sorry. But uh, if y'all will, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read a lot, actually. It's just it's 17 verses, but I want to get the entire context of what we're going to be talking about. So it's 1 through 17. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these." For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then I'll, I'll skip on down. Then verse 10 says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Just as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not that we may be. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That's going to be our root verses from 14 to 17. That all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. I want to tell you all the story about William Tyndale. If you've never heard of him, he was a 16th century theologian and writer. Um, and I'm going to give you the abbreviated version because, like I said, I was asked to keep it short. And um, I'll, I'll use the, the version from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And um, he writes that William Tyndale, was, he's known as the father of the English Bible. He's also known in a lot of circles as the father of the English language, even more so than Shakespeare. He spoke eight different languages and spoke them so well that it was said that any one of them could have been his native tongue. He was an expert in ancient Hebrew and Greek. He was a graduate of Oxford and Cambridge, and he would later become the tutor of a nobleman's children. The guy's name was Lord Welch. So being a prominent nobleman, Lord Welch would frequently entertain the collegiate and religious elite. So they'd sit around, and every time I think about the collegiate and religious elite sitting at a nobleman's house, you think of cigars and brandy, right? I'm like, honey, bring me a drink. And so they would discuss the writings of Erasmus and Luther. Can you imagine actually sitting with people face-to-face discussing the Bible? That's crazy in today's time, right? And if you can't, then join a small group, right? We have them, um, and we meet every other week. So Tyndale was often present for these discussions, and he had no problem speaking up when he disagreed with the positions on certain matters. So um, apparently he spoke up quite often. So if you think about that guy, Tyndale was that guy. Every time somebody had a conversation and they were talking about the Bible, he was the guy that was like, eh, you're wrong. Um, So it probably didn't take long for him to wear on him. But what made Tyndale so dominant in these discussions was he backed everything he set up with Scripture. And so many times when we get into discussions of the Bible, and this happens a lot, especially with me, it's my family. um, But we'll get into these discussions about Scripture, and they always tell me, well, my daddy said, please, Lord, don't ever come up to me and tell me what your daddy said or what your grandpa said. I'll call it Pawpaw's Law. A lot of people, they base their theology on what Pawpaw told them, and Pawpaw ain't God. Paul was wrong most of the time. Um, I remember one conversation I had. It says, well, in the Bible, it says birds with feather flock together. It literally says that nowhere in the Bible. But that's what Paul Paul said, right? So anyway, don't ever come to me with that. Like, it better be backed up by Scripture. So one day, Lord and Lady Welch, they come home from a dinner, and they tell Tyndale, Tyndale about what was discussed. And uh, as Tyndale t- proceeds to tell them why they were wrong again, Lady Welch interrupts and says, well, look, at the dinner was a doctor who could afford $100, there was another one who could afford 200 and the third could easily have spent $300. Why should we listen to you? And I know some of y'all are thinking right now, like, I spent $300 in gas just to get here this morning. But y'all have to remember, this is the 1500s. Like, that's a lot of money. But how often is this the case? Like, we'll judge a pastor and a preacher. We judge these men on how they look. We judge them on the size of their congregations. We judge them on the, how beautiful their churches are. And instead of judging them on their knowledge of Scripture and how they actually apply it to their lives, my buddy Gilmore, he sent me a quote a while back. He's that guy, you know, he sends quotes all the time in these little pictures. And I love most of them. I'll save them. And this one says, it was just some random person says, I don't need a pastor with a PhD. I need one with a spine. And that's what we're missing a lot in today's churches is that we don't have pastors that will stand up and just tell you the truth, whether it hurts your feelings or not. We're lacking that. 
But Tyndale didn't have a problem with it. So it just so happened that the lady Welch insults him and tells him he's not a doctor. Why should we listen to him? He had just finished translating Erasmus's manual of a Christian soldier into English, and he gave her a copy of it. So the book that Erasmus had written was based on a, living a life in scriptures and not based on church law, not based on ordinances and, and earning yourself. Erasmus urged his readers, quote, inject into their, to inject into their vitals the teaching of Christ by studying and meditating on the scriptures, using the interpretation favored by the early church and not the contemporary views of the Pope and the clergy. And that's something valuable for us today. If, church, if we go back into church history and we see what the church was doing 10,000 years, I mean 2,000 years ago, if we see that this is how they interpreted the scripture and this is how they lived it out, and all of a sudden in 2022 somebody tells you they have something new, Look, what are you going to believe, right? We don't need anything new. We need to go back and what did Christ say? How was it interpreted then? And that's how we apply it to our lives. And Tyndale was fighting that back then. Um, so Tyndale gives him this copy, and it's like a mic drop moment, right? He gets insulted by this lady. Well, you're not a doctor or a nobleman. So he gives her a book that he's translated, and they read it. And after reading it, guess what happens? They stop entertaining the doctors and the priests. They don't hang out with them anymore. Now they can see the truth. So of course, that doesn't take long for the local clergy to get ticked off about him. They start spreading rumors, and he gets dragged before uh, the bishop, and he was accused him of heresy. And that was serious back then because heresy was punishable by death. So if he would have actually had to go to trial for it, found convicted, they'll kill him. So long story short, Tyndale flees the country, and he finally ends up in Antwerp, where just a few short years later, he starts flooding England with a copy of the, it's the first English translation of the New Testament. So now they have it in their own hands. See, Tyndale believed that people should have the ability to read the scriptures for themselves instead of trusting the church to tell them the truth and explain it honestly. There's sinful men standing up here. Every pastor is a sinful man. If you can't read the Bible and confirm what I'm saying, how do you know what I'm saying is true? And that's how the church had a stranglehold on the people back then. They told them what the Bible said, and then they would twist it and use it to, to take advantage of them. See, he believed that the people only tolerated the church because they didn't know any better. So if the church actually taught the truth and taught it more clearly, they'd lose money, power, and all their privileges. And, of course, all of his works ended up being outlawed in England. The church is what ran England, so they outlaw the works. They don't want them to be able to read the Bibles themselves. And the Bishop of London starts trying to figure out a way to keep the Bible out of the, the um, people's hands. So... The bishop goes to a local merchant and he makes a deal with him. He says, look, every Bible and every one of the works that Tyndale sends into England, you give to me. And the merchant's like, I'll do it, but you're going to have to pay me, right? Because this is costing me money to buy them. So the, um, the bishop agrees to doing this, but what he didn't know is that the merchant was secretly a supporter of Tyndale. So all of the money that the church was paying this merchant for Tyndale's books, the merchant was sending back to Tyndale. So the church who was trying to extinguish Tyndale was actually funding all of his research and his work. So what, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And the more the church declared him a heretic, the more his books and Bible translations sold. So eventually, though, after years, Tyndale was captured, and he was jailed for a year and a half waiting trial. And finally, he was tied to a stake, strangled, and set on fire. And his dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. See, Tyndale was a genius, and he had the talents and the abilities to be rich and famous. And yet he gave it all up to stand up for and own the word of God. Like, why did he care so much? Why should you care so much? Why should we care so much about this book that we're willing to die for? That's the question that uh, Barry so graciously gave me the privilege to tackle today. To finally answer the question is, why, why do we need to study the Bible? Why is it important that we read 
and study it. These go together. Don't just read it, but read and study the Bible. Why is that so important? Why should we be willing to die on it? See, Fox's Book of Mars is filled with people that were killed because they believed what the Bible said. They, they were murdered. They were slaughtered because they stood on the word and they didn't recant. They didn't back down. Why should we care that much? Well, to fully answer that question, we need to ask two more. What is the Bible and who wrote it? So what is the Bible? Have you ever pondered that question? Some wouldn't know what to say. See, kids are really good about that. Kids will surprise you with some questions sometimes. They're like, what's this? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, crap, I don't know how to, you know, you don't know how to answer these things. But there's generally, generally three views on this. One is it's just a book. Two is it's a good book with valuable lessons. Or three, it is the book. Well, it is a book, right? It has a front and back cover. It has pages. It has words. But it's actually a collection of books. It's 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 in the New. And it was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages. It sold more copies than any other book by far in history. And it's since 1815, an estimated 5 billion have been sold. 5 billion since 1815. And around 80 million are printed every year. It's also the most stolen book in history. It's been translated into 2,587 languages, and that still doesn't cover everybody. It's some book. It's 88% of American households own a Bible, with an average owning five. Think about how many Bibles are sitting in your house right now. 88% of Americans own at least five Bibles on average. That's insane. And they're printing 80 million a year. Think about Lifeway. What do you think keeps them going? But here's the sad part. Only 19% of Americans say they read their Bible. 19% of Americans read their Bible. And depending on what study you believe, only 2 to 6% of Americans actually apply it to their lives. So of the 19% that actually read it, only 2 to 6% their worldview is being changed by it. So you know what that means? It means that Americans believe it's more important to own a Bible, but it's not important to read it, and it's even less important to obey it. So one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes, and I have a lot of them, is that a Bible that has fallen apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. So look around. It doesn't take long to look. You turn on the news, you open up social media, the world's falling apart, right? And it's because our Bibles have more dust than fingerprints. George Mueller wrote, It often astonishes me that I did not see the importance of meditation upon Scripture earlier in my Christian life. As the outward man is not fit to work for any length of time unless he eats, so it is with the inner man. What is food for the inner man? It's not prayer, but the word of God, so that it not only passes through our minds just as water passes through a pipe. No, we must consider what we read, ponder over it, and apply it to our hearts. It's the most sold, the most translated, the most stolen, and it's the most criticized book. So think over the past 200 years especially, men have made a killing. They've built institutions and made all kind of money. They've written books after books, article after article, trying to disprove and discredit the Bible. But you know, that only brings more credit to the credibility of the Bible. If it takes that much to try to criticize it and end it, but you can't do it, it just brings more credibility to what they're trying to criticize. So it really is some kind of book. But I think most of us in here know that it's more than just a book. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, to begin what we said, all scripture is inspired by God, or more accurately, it's God-breathed. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 reads, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. 
So this isn't anything new. The Bible testifies to the Bible being the Word of God. Over 2,500 times in the Old Testament alone, the Bible asserts that God spoke what was written within its pages. Isaiah 1, uh, verse 2, for example, Isaiah writes, Listen, O hearers, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And repeatedly we hear the prophets in the Old Testament say, Thus saith the Lord. And that's really important because I don't think any of y'all come to church in the mornings to hear on Sundays to hear what Barry or anybody else's opinions are on anything, right? The only job that a pastor has is to stand in the pulpit and declare, thus saith the Lord. That's it. This is what God said, and this is how you apply it to your lives. So the phrase, the Word of God, appears 40 times in the New Testament. So Jesus preached it, the apostles taught it, and it's the Word that all who are saved receive. So God spoken to us through mere men on two separate occasions. First, it was in the Old Testament writings through prophets, priests, visions, dreams, miracles, and sometimes he spoke audibly. So Mount Sinai, for example, he literally told Moses what to write on the tablets, right? But that was Old Testament. And the, the second occasion in the New Testament, is he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, and that's what we have written now. That's how God speaks to us. God doesn't speak audibly anymore. I heard one of the pastors say, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. So, <laughs> so it's inspiration that God breathed is the process by which God authored the Bible. Psalms 19 and 119, Proverbs 30. All these state that states that God's word is infallible, inerrant, and it's absolutely true. This is because it's God breathed. In 1 Peter 1, 19 through 21, Peter writes, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So scripture didn't originate in the minds of a religious men. They weren't written by an act of human will. They were moved by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The word Peter uses for move is actually, it's a sailing term, right? It's the idea of the wind filling and power in a sail. The authors had choice. They had free will. They had their own background, education levels, writing styles. They were in the boat and they were free to move around, but God directed their final destination. I remember when I was writing this, um, <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have thought about it, but I did. We went to Jekyll Island a few weeks ago. And they had these little toys. It was like a four-wheel bicycle. You pedaled it up and down the beach because, you know, the sand's so compact that you can drive on it. And uh, Maddie learned the hard way because she tried to do a handstand and fell on her face. But these, uh, these little four-wheel bicycles, you could pedal them. Or you could have these kites, right? And the, the wind would fill the kites, and these guys were scooting, right? You could pedal slow, or the wind fills it, and it will pull you along the beach. I mean, they were probably going 15 miles an hour, and they'd go past you and woo. The bad part was they were all middle-aged guys, right? There was no teenagers out. These are all middle-aged men without shirts on. They, most of them should have had on shirts. <laughs> and uh, the first thing that Cassie says is, look at the midlife crisis. But can I tell you all, just, just between us, right, I don't, there's no such thing as a midlife crisis, right? I've gotten to the point now where I'm 40, so everything that I want to do, every new thing that I want, that's what she accuses me of is having a midlife crisis. That's her, uh, that's her way of telling me no. But there's no such thing as a midlife crisis. We're the same six-year-old boys that wanted the G.I. Joes and all these other toys. The only problem, the difference in between being a six-year-old and 40 is I have a career in money now. I can actually buy the stuff that I want. So it's not a midlife crisis, it's freedom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So what was written down was exactly what God wanted. So what is the Bible? That's our first question. It's it's God's word to us. And who wrote it? It was men powered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was God. It was men writing to, to certain places, to certain people to correct certain problems. But God was using them to write his word. It was through the Holy Spirit that he empowered them to do this. So that brings us back to why should we study it? Why should we read and why should we study it? And the first reason is because it's God breathed. God wrote it. That should be enough right there to read it. It's through the process, though, of inspiration that God wrote the scriptures through men. But it's the content that was written that's revelation. So the second reason we should read the Bible and study it is because it's through the scriptures that God has chosen to reveal himself, the creator to his creation. Verses 14 through 15 Paul wrote, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. There's two kinds of revelations. There's general and there's special. But see, I wanted to include this first in chapter 14 just because I'm a youth pastor. Okay, it says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from which you have learned them. Paul's talking about uh, Eunice and Lois here. He's talking about Timothy's grandma and his mother who raised him in the scriptures. He's known them from childhood. They taught him, and he has known the sacred writings which are able to give wisdom and leads to salvation. Cassie and I, like one of the highlights of our week is being able to teach the teenagers, and we love it. There's nothing more exciting. It gives me a reason to really study the Bible. See, what you don't understand is that as we prepare for this, whatever we give you is just a smidgen of what we actually got throughout the week, being able to prepare it and, and being worked on and through by God. It's amazing. But as much as we love teaching the kids, it's not our job to disciple. It's yours as parents. You're the parents. You're the grandparents. You are the ones that get to disciple them. God gave you that privilege and a lot of times we get these kids dropped off and the only time they hear anything about the Word or the Bible is Sundays and Wednesdays, and that's it. That's not our jobs. Anyway, back on track. So there's two kinds of revelations. There's general and there's special. So nowhere better explains this than Psalms 19 and Romans 1. It's letting us know that everyone, everyone is held accountable. Nobody has an excuse before God. Nobody. We're all guilty, and we know it. The more you study the complexity of creation, the more you're compelled to recognize the true great greatness of God. You ever walked outside and looked up at the stars and, man, that's a pretty accident. Nobody's ever done that, right? You don't look up. You know just by gazing at the beauty of the night sky or sunrise or sunset. You know somebody created that. Sir Isaac Newton, the father of modern science, he was a believer. He was a Christian. Uh, Einstein wasn't a Christian, but he was convinced of a creator because he got to see every small detail of the universe or the fact that math always adds up to something. There's no random numbers. So that's the general revelation that just by looking into nature. But then there's also the inherent revelation through our knowledge of right and wrong. Everybody has a conscience, right, that testifies to our sin. Did anybody have to teach you how to sin? Like nobody has to teach anyone how to sin. Nobody. You can tell that if you have kids. And you know what's wrong, right? So I always think about it like this. Like God knows what he's doing. So in in nature, another way that we know that God is God and that that there's a creator behind things is have you ever seen a watermelon grow on the ground on these little bitty vines? Like a huge watermelon grows on a small vine. But then you look at a massive oak tree and a little bitty acorn grows on the oak tree. 
You think that's backwards, right? Until you get hit on the head with an acorn. Imagine a watermelon falling out of the tree and hitting you in the head. But see, it's the same thing with children. It's the same thing with babies. We think, man, like, look at that cute little thing over there. Like, one of my favorite passages, Lodi Bakken, he calls them vipers and diapers, right? So these are, these little bitty babies, like, they, they cry. They're selfish, right? But it's our job to take care of when we need to, but they don't care about you. They don't care about your feelings. They want what they want when they want it. You ever had one laying, you're holding it, and they're chewing on your watch or your bracelet, and they're pulling on it, and everything's so cute. But if that baby had the power, if that baby was the size of a watermelon, it would rip your arm off, beat you with it, and take your watch. <laughs> Nobody has to teach them to sin, right? So the law is written on our hearts, and our conscience bears witness to it. That's Romans 2, 14 through 15. So according to King Solomon, who was the wisest man ever, in Ecclesiastes 3, 11, he says, all men are aware of eternity. This life isn't it. We know that. So you hear people like, I'm an atheist, and I believe, you know, at a certain point, they've known themselves to certain things, and the Bible tells us that they can do that, but nobody actually believes there's nothing. Nobody. I've often heard it said, especially from anybody that was in the military, there are no atheists in war. None. You know something's coming. So general revelation that tells us the story of God's existence, his wisdom, his power, and his majesty, but it doesn't tell us how to be reconciled to him. It doesn't show us how to escape judgment that we know we deserve. So Romans 10, 5 through 17, 1 Corinthians 1 through 2, reminds us that no one can be saved by general revelation. Just simply knowing there's a creator doesn't save you. So what are we to do? And Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's through the special revelation of God's word that you come to the knowledge of Christ. So we've already read in 2 Peter that you do well to pay attention as to a light as a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Peter's saying, you don't believe, read and keep reading and keep pondering and keep studying until the scriptures come alive to you and Christ can save you. You have to look. In 2 Timothy 3.15, he says, The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. Scripture reveals the mind of God, the ways of God, the righteousness of God, and how we can please Him. The Scriptures themselves can't save us, but you can't be saved apart from them. They show you your problem and the only one who can save you. The entire Bible is a hymn book, right? It's all about Him. It's not about you, and that's where we get messed up a lot of times. You have to know how to study the Bible. We'll study it, and we'll think that we're the heroes of the stories. And if you ever look at a story in the Bible, and you put yourself in the shoes of the heroes, you're reading it all wrong. You're not the hero. You're the coward. You're the one that messed up. You're the one that's running and hiding. That's you. And that's the reason that Christ came. You, what you can't do, he did for you. That's all about Jesus. And that's all the Old Testament. It, the Old Testament is telling us of his coming, that he's coming. The New Testament tells us that he came and that he's coming back and that you better be ready. You better be ready. Acts 26, 16 through 18. So while telling King Agrippa of his conversion, Paul tells what Jesus told him after knocking him off his horse. Like, could you imagine that? Like that morning that God, Jesus just like, yeah, just wait, Paul. Paul's on his way to kill a bunch of Christians, and next thing you know, he's drop kicked off of a horse, and it's on. So this, this is uh, Paul's account of his own um, transformation. He says, but get up and stand on your feet. This is 
Jesus talking to Paul. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified in faith by me. From Satan to God. That's, so if you're not in God, you're in Satan. There is no in-between. The Bible's clear on that. There's never a middle road. There's never a middle ground. There's not one foot on one side and one foot on the other. You're never straddling the fence because Satan owns the fence. You're either all in with God or you're not in at all. And again, we come to this through his word. So the general revelation condemns, the special revelation condemns, and it redeems. In 1 John 17, 17, during his high priestly prayer for his disciples, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So we study the Bible because it's inspired. It's God-breathed. It's his word. And it's the only way to salvation, so it justifies. But not only does it justify, it sanctifies. See, those two things never are never apart. Those two things can't be separated. Nowhere in the scripture is it separated. Nowhere in scripture can you be justified without being sanctified. Sanctification is proof of justification in itself. I think a lot of times we, we confuse obedience with legalism. Obedience isn't legalism. Obedience is fruit that you were saved in the first place. Verses 16 through 17, profitable, this is, what, uh, this is how it sanctifies us, is that the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. This is the one book that as you're reading it, you'll start to figure out, it's actually reading you. It's a mirror. You start to see yourself in it. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty what you see. But your ugliness is far surpassed by, by Christ's beautiful, beautifulness. Like you'll see him and what he's done for you, and you can't help but to start molding your life into him and after him and to chase him for what he's done for you. It's the purpose for the Christian the purpose of the scriptures for you as a Christian is not to inform you or to show you how to perform, even though those things are there, but it's there to transform you. That's what the word does. So knowing all of this, why in the world won't people read their Bibles? If we know this, if you come to church and you hear that it's the word of God, if you know that it's the way to be saved, if you know it's the way to be sanctified, why in the world won't people read it? And I believe it's for the very same reason that you should read it, because it is profitable for teaching because it is for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. People don't want to change. We don't want to let go of sin. We don't want to follow after Christ. We don't want to look like him. Maybe something we'll do when we're older. And the problem with a lot of churches is these kids grow up in church. They were never saved. They were never taught the word. They graduate. They go off to college. And then after they're in their 30s and they have their own kids, they think, well, shoot, I grew up in church. It was good for me. Let me go back to church. Now they come back and they say, oh, well, the lost sheep's returned. That's not what happened. This person was never saved in the first place. And now their kids are in it and they're in the same vicious cycle over and over again. Nobody wants to be saved. Nobody wants to be changed. Everybody wants to be saved. Nobody wants to be changed. So during the Reformation, people like Tyndale, they risked everything to put Bibles in the hands of everyone to take the power away from the priests who would take advantage of ignorant people. They didn't know any better. They didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles now. They didn't have five per household. Now with five Bibles in everybody's house, we would rather drive down the road and listen to some false teacher take advantage of us and our money because, you know what, it's a lot easier than actually having to read the Bible and change. We don't want that. We don't have to give up anything. It's easier. Somebody just tells us, hey, look, man, put 10 bucks in the offering plate. You're good to go. You've earned something. You can't earn it. 
There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Nothing. It's the oldest trick in the book. Like, literally, it's the oldest trick in the book. Genesis 3. Did God really say? Did he really say this? We're dealing with that all over the place now. You look at getting to an argument on sexuality, genderism, all these things. That's what they said. Well, did God really say it? They still do spend a lot of time trying to break it down and twist it. They'll write three volumes on how God said you could do this when literally it's one verse. It was scripture that Satan quoted to Jesus in the wilderness. I mean, it was out of context, of course, but that's how he's quoting to Jesus. He's trying to lure him into, he's trying to lure him by scripture. But what Jesus spoke back to Satan was scripture in context. That's the power that we have. Remember, we're all going to suffer. If you're trying to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. But it's the scripture that gives you the power to endure it. It's his promises and believing that his word is true. And the last reason, and I really, could have, I really could have started with this and finished it in five minutes. I told Cassie that. When I first started thinking about it, I was like, why should we read the Bible? Why is it important to read and study the Bible? Honestly, this is really a five-minute sermon. If you turn to Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn there, of course, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 9, God says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, you should think about them constantly. You should read them. You should meditate on them. You should teach them. So why should we read the Bible? We'll sum it all up with this, because he said so. That's it. God said do it. You do it. You don't get to choose. I thought about that a lot, because, man, there's that moment. Every parent knows, or you remember as being a kid, that you ask that one question, and you get put in your place real quick with, I said so. That's it. Like, if Daddy said he said so, that means the discussion's over. He's got the power and authority to do that. You don't hear that a lot anymore. Now we hear, you know, psychologists and stuff says, well, you probably need to explain to your child. No, you don't. Like, if you say no, no's no. That's it. End the story. Move along. Because we need to know our place. And we need to know our place under God. We don't get to question God. God says, do it, do it. And if you really do have a question, then read the rest of your Bible. He explains a lot in there. But I'll finish up with this, right? So there's a disorder. It's known as CHSP. It's chewing and spitting. It's kind of gross, but it's an eating disorder, right? It's associated with anorexia and bulimia. And I remember I watched a documentary on this a couple years ago. And what the people would do is they would, they were starving themselves, right? But they would chew the food. They would take whatever food, they would chew it and give enough time to trick their brain into producing endorphins so they'd get pleasure, right? They wanted to trigger those pleasure sensors in their brain by just chewing the food and then they'd spit it out. They were never actually being nourished from it. They just wanted the taste and thought they could trick themselves into pleasing themselves. Well, that's what we do with the scripture so often is people come in here and they'll just chew it a little bit and then they spit it out and become spiritual anorexics because they don't actually want it to change them. They don't actually want it to nourish them. They don't want it to, to grow them. They don't want it to alter their bodies in any kind of way. They just want to feel good that they came. They just want to feel good that they read it and then move on with their lives. But the Bible isn't just for reading. It's for studying and it's for applying and it's for obeying. Only reading, only reading the Bible is, is the equivalent of spiritual anorexia. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for, for your word. And I just I pray, Father, that as, as we've gone through it, as we see the reasons that we should study it, that we're reminded this isn't, it's not an exhaustive list and there's so many more reasons that we need to be in your word, but mainly because you've commanded us. You've commanded your people to study it and to obey it and to share it. And I just pray right now, Father, that if, if anyone lacks that desire, that you give them the desire, that you, you give them a hunger and that you give them a thirst and that you give them a, a need that, that can't be filled with anything but your word. And we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the praise team prays, as always, the, the altar is open. And if you can't think of anything to pray for, pray for a hunger for the word. Or pray for me. Good Lord, I'm the youth pastor. <laughs> and if you know Cassie. Oh, and I'm going on vacation with Aaron, so really, pray for me. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please visit our website at realchurchcoweta.com and click on the Contact Us tab. We invite you to join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. Until then, God bless and remember to love God, love others, and live real.